Perhaps it would be in order as I begin the lesson this evening, at least with that title, to state that uh, when I prepared it and began to work toward its end, I certainly didn't have the thought that it would actually be raining this Sunday evening, but nonetheless, perhaps it'll give us an opportunity to better place in mind some of the things that God has shared with us about rain and about some of the blessings that we can so lovingly appreciate with the character of the rain about us. In fact, as you can give the consideration to that title, Let It Rain, using as the text in Acts 14, verse 17, wasn't it Paul on that occasion who not only made mention of rain, but in fact stated at least two points that will be a part of our lesson this evening. With those thoughts, at least in one sense, introductory in character, let's extend them by introducing it a little bit further and then move into some special points concerning the subject of rain and also concerning what can be of great benefit to us practically speaking as we think about rain and the character that it tells us about God. As you notice upon that particular screen, it is truly fantastic in many ways, isn't it, to think about the weather. I know that sometimes we get frustrated at the meteorologists. We certainly, when perhaps hay cutting time comes or when we have outdoor plans and the weather doesn't turn out like we had hoped it would and perhaps like we had thought that it would based on the, the forecasts. Nonetheless, we can understand that that still is a handy work and a hallmark of the greatness of what God has fashioned. For isn't it true based on what you see there, the weather is a very complex and complicated thing. It's no wonder that even with the supercomputers that we have available, still weather forecasting a mere few days into the future is almost useless. That's because of the complexity involved in it. It's not that we can't program the computers, and it's not that we can't put in place the manner by which the forces lead to that weather, but it changes so much. And the character of the things that cause the change are so involved that we simply cannot predict it to any degree, any length of time into the future. That complexity also leads us to see, even from our own experience, how that like yesterday we can enjoy a day of warmness and pleasantness and how that things about us are so enjoyable. And perhaps not many hours later it can be dreary and cold and from time to time even dangerous things can come by virtue of the weather. Perhaps all of that can lead us to see that the myriad of possibilities is truly remarkable. Be it the precipitation in the form of snow or rain or sleet or hail or the other matters such as fog or lightning or thunderstorms, God has fashioned a rather intricate system and it would do us well to at least talk about rain this evening and give some thought as to what the rain can teach us based on, again, the Holy Scriptures. It's not our wish to speak from a scientific standpoint. It is our wish, though, to let God speak, isn't it, on the subject of rain. With those ideas in mind, might I point you to the first couple of lessons that I would invite us to consider this evening. These first two are in fact entitled, The Necessity of Rain and The Provision of Rain. Let's look at them one at a time and first give some thought to that interesting matter of the necessity of rain. If you and I were to use our own experience and poll the number here present, or in fact seek some counsel from the biology department at Tennessee Tech, one of the things that we would readily learn is how important moisture, how important water is for the growth and sustenance of any living thing, be it those of the plant kingdom or those things of, let's say, the animal kingdom or those like us of the human kingdom. 
we can understand all of them have a, a basic need, a basic requirement for water. I would invite your attention to consider just how essential it is and what the scriptures tell us about some of those matters. If we return to the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, might I invite your attention with me to verse 10 of that interesting chapter. Isaiah 55, verse number 10. Listen to hear what the inspired prophet, by the great power of God, affirmed relative to moisture and its necessity in the form of water and in the form of rain. For as the rain cometh down, God said, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Fascinating, isn't it, to hear God say that it is in fact by the provision, by the necessity of that water, and the great provision that those plants are able to bud. Without the water, without the moisture, the nourishment provided by virtue of it, how different, in fact, would be the world in which we live. For consider how the plants are in need of it. And you and I as well, direly in need of it as well. But not only in that text in Isaiah. Consider Isaiah 44, verse 14, only a few chapters before. And listen here to God speak again through the prophet and speak clearly about those great trees that existed in the Palestinian area and how that water, how that the nourishment from rain is what allowed them to have that character and the growth that they experienced. Again, these matters in many ways aren't new to our own appreciation. We know the necessity of water. But isn't it comforting to hear God assert that? And doesn't that remind us that this, namely the matter concerning rain and the watering it provides, is in fact the design of the great God of heaven. No human being came up with as great a system as this. For you and I know that we, say, put out a plant. We may well have to water it ourselves. But think about how that God can water hundreds of thousands of acres using His own rainfall. Who among us could have designed a system like this? Aren't we reminded again from Isaiah 45, verse 18, that God fashioned this earth to be inhabited. He made it this way, and His handiwork is seen all about us, even in ways related to the simple rainfall that perhaps is occurring just outside this building. As rain is presented to us in that fashion, might I ask us each to consider this question? When God gave the commandment to Adam and Eve to replenish the earth, that is to fill it, so that the population could be great, might we consider where would everyone live if all the earth was a desert? What if the Sahara Desert in fact encompassed not only all of Africa, but most all of the other continents as well? We can easily imagine the problem. God has fashioned bounds in which there are places where there are deserts, but there are also places like here in the southeastern United States where we enjoy a bountiful rainfall most of the time and our seasons can be described as pleasant and fruitful and the things can be brought forth and budding as God has provided. Might we appreciate the greatness of God's design being in the systems of weather or be it the systems in which the plants depend on that and so too do we and all of it works together to make the kind of place that God designed. But perhaps secondly, notice with me a lesson involving the provision of water. Isn't it amazing that we've just discussed how needful water is, how in fact essential for without it a plant will soon die. 
In fact, a human being cannot go more than a few weeks without water. You and I would die too without it. If it is the case that water is that vital, and if it's the case you and I can't make it, then aren't we dependent upon the provision of one who can? Scientists, in fact, in the laboratory can combine hydrogen and oxygen and make water. But could we ever make it in bountiful enough means to, in fact, provide enough water for the almost 7 billion people on earth? And could we ever make enough to water every tree and every blade of grass there is? Our God did it, and He has put in place this system by His provision. Might we give some thought to just a few of those verses that I've listed for your consideration? As needful and as important as rain is, the Bible over and over again reminds us that it's God that brings it. It's God that provides it. It is He that put in place the system to accomplish and bring it to pass. I've listed a few for your thinking. In Job 5, verse number 10, Back in the ancient days of the long ago, even that so-called friend of Job named Eliphaz affirmed there that isn't it God that brings the rain? Isn't it God that makes the water and sends it forth to water His creation? In Job 38, verse 26, on this occasion it's now God speaking. After all the difficulties surrounding Job's friends and their rebuke of him, Finally, God proceeds to respond to Job, and among those questions that he asked Job was this, Job, can you make a waterway for the clouds of heaven to drop their bountiful rain? Could you have done that? Of course, the point is, God did that. And even we can still appreciate today how important it is when God provides us with that much-needed rainfall, for how often it's so refreshing and, of course, the appreciation of just, again, how vital and how important it is. In the eighth verse of the 147th Psalm, we again notice there this remark. I would ask you consider the power and majesty of the way the rain is described in this passage. Psalm 147, verse number 8. In a psalm that deals with the greatness of God, His infinite understanding, the power of His character, and all that He is able to bring about, in the midst of all of that, we find this discussion of the rain. I would invite you to hear it as we read it together. Speaking of God, it says, Who covereth the heaven with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. In such a simple fashion, in the midst of all these other things that had been accomplished by God, it is mentioned, He also provided and prepared the rain. I might invite you also in that same regard to look at Jeremiah 10, verse 13. This is one of the most comprehensive statements about weather to be found anywhere in all the book of God. As you listen to the way it describes rainfall, perhaps all meteorologists could take great solace in the study of a verse like this one. Job chapter 10, verse 13. When he, that's God, uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain, and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. We might take note that there we have that interesting phrase, his treasures. It is as if God is blessing us by opening the treasure store and allowing us to appreciate that which he has provided. There the wind and the rain are brought forth out of his treasures. It is to be noted in regard to a passage like that one, how often that the Old Testament people in particular 
we're reminded to ever be thankful for the rain and to also understand the source of who brings it. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, as the children of Israel were shortly to cross the Jordan River and enter into that blessed land of Canaan, that land of promise, Moses, before he passed away, straightforwardly told them that when you will follow the Lord your God and when you will, in fact, properly obey that which he has commanded, you will enter into this land and be blessed mightily with this land that feels the greatness of the rain that God provides. I might suggest that each of us, too, as we experience the rain, we might certainly appreciate the refreshing nature of it, but might we also not forget who's providing it. And the very one who, in fact, has opened and allowed us to receive that blessing, for we've noticed now twice it is described that way. In addition to that text in Deuteronomy 28, similar thoughts are presented not only in Jeremiah 5:24, but also in Hebrews 6, verse 7, even in the New Testament. To this point, we've thus learned about the necessity of rain, and we've also learned about the one who provides it. It is to be noted in regard to that, there's an additional lesson that we should consider. This one I've entitled simply, A Witness for God. As I looked at these verses that we have just considered, and in particular, considered the one for our lesson text tonight, I would invite you again to read from the 14th chapter of Acts with me and listen not only to the physical way that rain is described, but also listen to me to one of the other things that rain makes possible. Again, Acts chapter 14, verse number 17. On that occasion, as Paul was preaching on the first missionary journey, this is the point that he made. Nevertheless, he, that he refers to God, left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Might I invite us to notice that there is a word in that passage that we shouldn't pass too quickly. It's the word witness. Amongst the other things, as Paul stood with courage and boldness, and he spoke to these individuals who, in fact, had often given themselves to idolatry, Paul was attempting to convince them of the true God of heaven and the nature of his handiwork about them and the fact that he has given you evidences of himself. And among those evidences, he said, the rain serves as a witness to him. That almost presents a very fearful circumstance to those who have the audacity to say there is no God, who in fact can look at all the things about them, including the provision of rain, and still adamantly say, I don't believe in God. That must be the height of foolishness to see that kind of witness, God's majestic watering system, and thus to claim somehow there is no God behind it. Somehow there's no higher superior being that has provided this. Paul said, God has, is not without witness. He has provided in the form of the rain. And each time we see those wonderfully refreshing raindrops and see that which they make possible, it should turn us again in our attention to the one who made it possible and to the one who so bountifully blesses us in that regard. The rain does serve as a witness, doesn't it, to him? Might I state that Jeremiah had something to say that is somewhat verse 2 of that, of that refrain. For in Jeremiah 14, verse 22, in regard to things like the rain, God there through Jeremiah said, None but God can do this. 
I'm reminded that man has made his attempts throughout the decades. And after the invention of the airplane and the opportunity to seed clouds, men at first thought that he would have the opportunity to control the rainfall. Have you noticed that there are still deserts? Have you noticed that there are still not very, very many planes that attempt any cloud seeding? Why? Men still can't do it. Oh, we can make a little shower at times, but what we've discovered is that there's a far more complexity to it than just spreading some kind of sodium chloride or other salt to the atmosphere. God said none but me can do it. May we appreciate then that the rain serves as a witness to, in fact, the greatness of God. But in addition to that, the Bible on many occasions reminds us that it is also God who controls that rain. Not only does he provide it, not only do we appreciate how needful it is, but it is beneath his control. In fact, so many verses point us in that direction. I chose only a sampling of them, but I think that these will be familiar enough to us and challenging enough to us that they will easily remind us that the rain is beneath the terrific control of the great God of heaven. We know that God is sovereign and that he is, in fact, the sovereign being of all. As we've often noted, the major thrust, theme, and lesson of the whole Bible is the absolute sovereignty of the greatness of God. That also occurs even with regard to the rain. It is stated to us directly in Amos 4-7, as well as Isaiah 5-6, where God said, I can withhold it, and I can make it to be given. It was in that Isaiah passage that God was describing in a figurative fashion His own sinful people of Judah. After that divided kingdom, Judah should have in fact drawn close to God and lived by his dictates and ordinances. Nonetheless, God said they are like a vineyard that has run rampant. They now have in it briars and brambles and weeds and things that are no good. God said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to withhold the rain from them. It's as if God could control the spigot. And I wonder, did there come dry seasons amongst Israel? Did there come to be periods of drought? All we need to do is read some of the minor prophets and listen to the suffering and the distress that came upon them when, in fact, they did suffer under, under the duress of great drought. But perhaps in regard to those, perhaps the clearest evidence and the most compelling example comes in the life of that prophet Elijah. Are we not in remembrance in 1 Kings chapter 17 when there there was a very wicked ruler on the throne of Israel? We well remember him. His name was Ahab and he had a wife whose name was Jezebel. As we contemplate the evil that they wrought and the difficulties that they brought upon Israel, God herein said, Elijah, I'm going to bring neither rain nor dew upon this land. I wonder if that came to pass. It certainly did. In fact, for over three years, if we count them, it's three and a half years as we're told later in the Bible. For 42 months it did not rain, neither did it dew. You see, God was under the control of that, all the character of the time that it occurred. And due to the wickedness, God brought that drought upon them and the people suffered mightily because of it. It is a tragedy that the rulers did not learn the lesson that they ought to have learned. We do notice again after 42 months, God again told the prophet Elijah, He said, you go and you meet Ahab. And, he, and in that meeting, he said, now I'm going to bring rain. 
I wonder, did it bring rain? Before that very evening came to a close, it rained so hard that in fact there was great difficulty in traveling in the city of Jerusalem. Cannot we see God was in control of that rainfall? And later in the New Testament, that very matter is mentioned as a prime example for us in regard to the power of prayer. In the fifth chapter of the book of James, the closing chapter of that book, we notice in verses 17 and 18 that as James was emphasizing how powerful prayer is, he said, don't you remember there was a man of God who prayed earnestly that it not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. That was the very context in which James said, in verse 16 of that chapter, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You and I thus have every confidence as, as a person of God, as a child of His, to pray for that rain when we appreciate the need for it. And also, of course, be quick to thank Him for it when He does bring it and when He provides it. Thus, we can see on this instance, the nature of rain reminds us God's in control of it. As you think about that matter with me, I've listed a number of verses that are near the bottom of that slide. One of them we made note of even in the lesson this morning. In James 1 verse 17, If it is the case that we can make note of the goodness of rain, doesn't it then fall under the heading, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The goodness thus of that rain prompts us perhaps to look at yet another lesson. For these four ideas so far have been very reminiscent of just how great the rain is and how thankful we should be to God for it. But there are some other lessons the Bible brings to us in, con in relation to rain as well. On more than one occasion, the phrase, clouds without rain, is found in the Holy Scriptures. And those instances seem to be fraught with the most interesting circumstances. And thus it is to that occasion I would ask you to ponder with me, what is the significance of clouds without rain and what might you and I take from those occurrences? First of all, as you think about the anticipation, I'm sure we've each been there many times. Perhaps after a great period of heat in the summer, perhaps it's been dry for several weeks and we understand how refreshing it would be to have a shower of rain. Perhaps there's been times we've seen on the distant horizon a dark-looking cloud. And we perhaps get our hopes up with a degree of excitement about the fact maybe there's some rain shortly to come our way. However, as the hours pass and we see the cloud approach and it passes right overhead and there's no rain in it. It's a disappointing thing. In fact, it's a discouraging thing. It is such that our anticipation is shot. It is the case that our excitement has been lowered and reduced. You see, when clouds come without rain, they are a foreboding of a bad occurrence. They have within it dashed hopes. They have within it all excitement that was brought to naught. Things that held great promise and potential and possibility, but they never reached their fruition. In that sense, clouds without rain, you see, is used in the Bible in a negative way. And I've listed some verses for your consideration with me. In Proverbs 25 of the Old Testament, we notice there that when that phrase was used again, it described a person who boasted over things of which he had no control. 
in essence, his words were vainly sent forth and vainly described that for which he had no opportunity to even have a role to play. Doesn't it help us see clouds without water there? was certainly not a great positive thing. It described a person who should have known better and who should have acted better. In the New Testament, perhaps Jude is the person who takes that description to its highest echelon. For in the book of Jude, just a simple one-chapter book, but in verse number 12, Jude is describing for us clouds without water. And who is he figuratively describing with that phrase? We must go all the way back to verse 4 to begin that description. In Jude, verse number 4, he begins description of these who have crept in unawares and who in fact have sought to destroy that which you once have known. He's speaking about those who were false teachers. Individuals who have slipped their way into your midst, they do not teach you the truth. They take that which perhaps was once truth and they have encumbered it. They've perverted it. They've changed it. They have twisted it to the point that it is no longer the unadulterated truth of God. The writer said these are clouds without water. Oh, they perhaps preach a great lesson in the sense that it sounds good, Oh, they perhaps preach what may sound to be the needful matters of your daily life and that which you can use to aid you to be a better individual. But if the truth is not in it, it is not a cloud with water. It holds all the promise and potential of being from God when it's not. It has all the hope of being that which can produce livelihood eternally for one when in fact all it shall bring is eternal damnation. You see, a cloud without water is a disastrous thing in this sense. That challenges each and every one of us, doesn't it? To be Christians who are clouds filled with water, who in fact are so filled with that beautiful message of the life-giving water of the gospel that we certainly are not clouds without water, but we're able to dispense that goodness of God, John 4 verse 14, to that, those life-giving waters to any who we have opportunity to share them with. Is it any wonder in the very closing chapter in all the Bible, the 22nd chapter of the Revelation, where there we have this invitation, let whosoever will come and do what? Take of the water of life freely. God has provided you and me with these tremendous life-giving waters in the form of the gospel. May you and I as Christians be thoroughly acquainted with those life-giving waters and be ever ready to dispense that truth to those we're privileged to meet. Be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is within you, with meekness and with fear, to quote verse 15 of 1 Peter 3. Thus, clouds without water, none of us should be like that. And we see this spiritual lesson challenges us again to be those knowledgeable ones of the sacred scriptures, and do they not prompt us to look at yet this other <clears throat> lesson? And this sixth one relates rather closely to the fifth one that we just finished. The relation to one's spiritual condition. I have made note of it, at least in passing, twice to this point in the lesson. But it would do well to, in fact, cast the spotlight directly upon that thought. As we revisit the Old Testament and ask in particular... When did God bring about that rain, and when did He withhold it? Was it conditional upon the activities and responses and the life, livelihood of that nation? In fact, only God can give us the nature of that thinking. 
I would invite you to turn with me to Leviticus 26. And as we look at the fourth verse of that chapter, we'll be reminded of just how clear this idea is in the book of God. In Leviticus 26, verse number 4. This chapter contains a rather lengthy listing of the promises as well as the punishments that Israel would receive dependent upon her behavior. In verse number 4, this in particular is what is said. <clears throat> I would like to preface it by beginning in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. That's a rather simple presentation, isn't it? God said to Israel, I am leading you to this land of promise, this glorious land of Canaan. And in the sense that they were heading in that direction, we now find God to them saying, If you will obey my voice, keep my commandments, obey my statutes, and do that which is my bidding, then I will in fact provide you with the rain in due season. Might we never forget the conditional nature of that statement? If they were to receive the rain, the condition had to be met. They needed to be obedient unto God. Can we not understand then that Israel should have well understood how important it was to be obedient to the Lord and receive the fullness of the physical blessings that went along with His gifts? Among those ideas, that also is reiterated in 1 Kings 8 verse 35. On that occasion, Solomon was the spokesman. And here at the occasion of the dedication of that temple, after all the labor that had gone into it, Solomon poured forth his thinking and that noble time of his life in prayer to God. And among the things he said was, When this people obeys your voice, God, give them the rain. Provide their land with the moisture that it needs to be fruitful. I would ask you to ponder with me the thinking of just what that suggests. If it was the case in the Old Testament that God promised the rain on the condition of their obedience and on the condition of their faithfulness and on the condition of their loyalty to Him, and we have also seen that He did bring drought and He did bring hardship when they did not obey Him, is there a lesson in that for you and me today? Is there a lesson in that for our nation? Certainly we must say this. We do learn in Matthew, the fifth chapter, God does provide the rain to the just and to the unjust. He is at least good even to the wicked in that regard, but let's also recognize this. There comes a time His long-suffering nature will reach its end. There comes a time when, in fact, hardship will be brought upon that nation that turns its back upon God. There will come a time when He will restrict enough of it to make things hard. Are we in this country moving in that direction? Are we moving in such a position where we should think seriously about the lack of rainfall? Talk to any climatologist that you wish, and you will find that the western part of our country, from Texas all the way to California, is currently in the severest drought on any record in history. Be it the states of Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, California, talk to any of them. The water table is so far depressed in the, in the nature of earth that times are hard. Water has to be shipped from hundreds and hundreds of miles away 
to provide water to Los Angeles and other places. I only mention that to say, ought we as a nation to think very seriously about the condition of the Old Testament and how that it was to those people and to those nations who were obedient to God that received the fullness of the beauty of God's rainfall. Those nations that in fact were disobedient, meaning Judah and Israel, they suffered. The rainfall was withheld and they found themselves in dire straits indeed. Earlier tonight in our prayer, we of course prayed that our leaders would spend much time in prayer. We pray that they would think often upon the Word of God and that they would let the Word of God be their guide. Certainly that's appropriate. For ought not we to pray for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty? To quote 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. And so, rain even brings us to appreciate that thought. In light of all these things, might I ask that we close our lesson with one final thought. The seventh and final thing that we might learn, it seems to me, from rain might well be this one. As refreshing as physical rainfall is, and as lovely as it can often be, might I suggest, in light of what we've studied, that the most important rainfall is not that physical rainfall. The most important rainfall is a rainfall described elsewhere in the Bible. Would you revisit with me Hosea chapter 10, verse 12? In fact, such poetic language, such beautiful verses that in fact talk about a kind of rain maybe we hadn't thought about. Hosea chapter 10, verse number 12. It's a rather simple passage, but it's fraught with such meaning. That verse simply reads as follows. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. As you think with me about how lovely, how lovely physical rainfall is, notice that we have in the course of the lesson noted that that physical rainfall is conditional upon some other things. And here Hosea told ancient Israel, it is time to seek the Lord and let him rain righteousness on you. Oh, how we indeed need to let it rain. And that prompted me to provide the lesson title that I did. We should longingly wish for God to let righteousness rain upon you and me. For us to be so earnest and so devoted in our loyalty to God that we live in such a way that our life is an open testimony to God's righteousness and that righteousness will be rained through us to those about us. Indeed, how we should let it rain as we consider the reigning of God's righteousness upon us. I would submit to you then in regard to a passage like that one and some others in which the idea of reigning godliness or thoughts like that appear. May we each be challenged and charged to leave this place tonight better equipped to appreciate the physical rainfall, but also the reigning of righteousness that can occur in your life and mine as we present to others the glorious goodness of the life-giving waters of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those thoughts allow us to close that lesson this evening. And I have merely chosen to summarize these seven points in a rather quick fashion. For in all of them that we've looked at, we have been reminded of rain's necessity, of the lovely provision of it by the God of heaven. We furthermore have noted that it is beneath the control of God and that it serves as a timeless witness to Him. 
Amongst all of that, we also began to see some great spiritual relationships in regard to the rain. Namely, we notice that clouds without water are in fact terrible things. For in the spiritual realm, they discuss false teachers and those who are not grounded in the great truth of God's righteousness. Furthermore, we notice that just as surely as the rain is under control of God, it also has great relation to one's spiritual condition. And finally, how lovingly we should allow righteousness to reign in our lives. This very night, as we this think about rain, might I encourage each of us again to let it rain. And as we do that, to often think about how great a blessing the physical rainfall is, but what spiritual lessons we should take from it. Tonight, what about your life and mine? Is righteousness reigning in it? Is Christ reigning through you? If he's not, there must be a problem. Either you have never rendered initial obedience to Christ, or you have, though once been obedient, you've wandered away from the power of his side. If that first situation is your issue tonight, there's a song of encouragement that will be sung in just a moment. Don't procrastinate or delay. Come to the Lord tonight. The 22nd of November, 2009, can be your spiritual birthday and not a greater day in your life will there be. It'll be a day in which your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It'll be the day you became a member of the church. It'll be the day in which you took the Lord's hand and proceeded to walk hand in hand toward eternity. That's a great day. As you think about that, though, and if you have done that at some point, that is to say, you've believed and repented, confessed and been baptized, but you haven't been faithful to that calling. Don't you miss where you once were? Don't you miss the fellowship you once had with God and with His Son? We could, in fact, assist you to be put back in that rightful place tonight. Not that we, by our power, can do it, but we can pray on your behalf to God who will forgive you of those wrongs and those sins in your life. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you in either of these regards and ways, won't you let it be known in what way we can help while together we stand and while we sing?